genre pictures and all that crazy good stuff i'm your host lydia and this is my co-host joseph hello hello and welcome did we want to add our little introductions Could introduce each other yeah why not start doing that like 12 episodes into a podcast (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, you go ahead i did the intro intro you do the soft (laughs) intro this is my friend Lydia, and she is our resident horror expert, thriller aficionado, and crime. You like the crimes. That's true. These are all things I do enjoy. Now me. Oh, I have to do you. Um, this is my friend Joseph. I feel like it's the first day of kindergarten. Mm-hmm. He is, uh, you know, our resident philosophizer. And I mean, I really am trying not to be an asshole. My first instinct is to just like make fun of the pretentiousness. Oh, okay. No. Oh my God. You thought my first instinct was to make a gay joke? No. What the fuck? My first instinct was to make fun of your devil's advocacy and Mm. pretentiousness. Jesus. Uh, No, he is our resident philosophy expert. Um, and I, despite being an English major, would say you are also our, our definite book expert. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and fantasy fan. Yes, very true. So we're eventually going to talk about The Devil All the Time, which just came out on Netflix. So we're super hyped for it because we love Pattinson and Holland. Yeah. Basically every, everyone in that movie Mm -hmm. we love. But before that, we are going to talk about everything else that we've watched, because we've actually spent three weeks before recording, which is longer than usual for us. Usually it's a max of, what, two weeks that we go in between recordings? Um, And this time it was like three, which is is a long time for me when it comes to watching content, since I just put shit on the background while I work. So I have a lot. So what have you been watching? We made an agreement on what we were going to talk about ahead of this, and I don't remember now. Let me see here. Looking through the old book of stuff. Well, okay. I feel like this fits the tone, and we both watched it, so I'm going to bring it up now. Sure. I saw, like, three weeks ago, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Mm-hmm. Me too. Charlie Kaufman movie based on the Ian Reed book of the same title. Um, so I've read the book and I saw the movie. I I enjoyed the movie. I did. I think I liked the book more. The book made me uncomfortable. Like I couldn't put it down. I didn't want to stop reading it. And it's small. Like it's, it's not a huge book. I would almost classify it as a novella. Like it's like maybe 300 pages. But it, it creates so much tension and unease. And it's really only between these two main characters 
like the guy and the girl that are in the car together. But it's so effective. It's just, it's uncomfortable. There's a lot of tension. You can feel it building to something and you know something terrible is going to happen 20 pages into this story. Mm. The way the book works, the way the book is laid out and how it's predominantly just these two characters, like there's really no interaction with anybody else. It would be incredibly difficult to translate that into a movie. So I think I think the way Charlie Kaufman did it was really good. I think he did an excellent job and I think it was very enjoyable. It was artistic. There was a lot of like tension building and atmosphere, but there's a lot of like beauty to it as well. But as far as like effectively getting the point across, I just think the book did a better job. Hmm. I loved um I loved Jesse Jesse Plemons. He was he mm-hmm. was Jake, the, the yeah. male character. I loved him. And Tony Collette is a fucking treasure in everything. I was really unprepared for the movie going into going into it. It really shocked me about halfway through. Well, shock is not the right word because there's no moment, but it was like a somewhere halfway to the three quarter mark. I really realized the movie was not going to cohere in a way that it it wasn't like a thriller where it's like there's some mystery and you're not understanding things and then everything will come together in the end. Like mm-hmm. I realized it was the exact opposite. That it was, was going to be like Horse Girl or something like this where it just gets weirder and weirder. Yeah. Um, and if I knew it was Charlie Kaufman going in, which I did not know, I would have definitely yeah. anticipated that, but I did not. And of course you had the book. So. Yeah. And I mean, that is, you know what? I got to be honest. It's kind of, a difference between the book and the movie as well. And and it's very much Charlie Kaufman's stylistic choice. If you read the book, it does feel more linear, really. Yeah. Because you're following these two characters in the car and at the farmhouse and then at the school. So it does feel a lot more linear. There's just this incredible tension that I think, like, the movie does that but you don't, it, I don't know. It's the gravity of the tension in the book because you just so don't understand what's happening and you don't understand why this young woman is so uncomfortable around her boyfriend and his family. Like you just do not get where this sense of unease is coming from, but you know something terrible is going to happen to her. So when the apex of the film co- or of the of the book comes it's it's very near the end of the story when you finally truly understand what's happening and why you're so uncomfortable why you're so afraid of like whatever reality is going to show up whereas in the Charlie Kaufman movie it's that non-linear structure that he's so known for with like being John Malkovich and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind it's more about atmosphere mm-hmm. and strangeness. And I think as a visual representation of the book, that's you need somebody like Charlie Kaufman to do it because to show this in a linear fashion, the way the book does it, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't work. It couldn't work. It would be so boring. There wouldn't be any tension because there's nothing to show. It's just them in a fucking car, almost 90% of it. Mm-hmm. So you have to have those like flash forwards and flashbacks and weird movements through time and character introductions that don't make sense. And you you need those moments to show you the reality breaks 
to create the same kind of feeling of tension that you get from the book without that. I was going to ask you from the book, because you seem to know, it's like what, what it really is about. But for me, right away in the first scene where she says, I'm thinking of ending things, perhaps multiple times, but at least once forcefully. She says it like 87 times. Yeah, I, I, th- I thought she might have. Yeah. I Finally, yeah, and apparently she doesn't have a name in the... Uh, so it's Louise, I think, at the beginning. But it changes? She has a few names. Uh, yeah. So I thought that the first interpretation is that the, the title implies... You know, a twofold. Of course, the basic one, which is a relationship ending, but then secondly, of course, ending one's life. So I was, I was curious as to why the movie was doing that, and I thought it was going to be a much more linear movie. So I was like, oh, how is it going to progress to show that it's actually more about her own stakes rather than just the relationships? Of course, that's not what happens at all, <laughs> and it becomes this much more surreal uh, adventure, especially with the time manipulation. Mm-hmm. and apparently with the name manipulations too, which I didn't fully notice while watching the film. It was only in reading a review after that someone, the person pointed out that she doesn't have a name because she actually goes through many names throughout the movie. Yeah, it's it's Louise, I think, at the beginning, and then it's Lucy, or no, it's Lucy at the beginning, then Louise, then Louisa, F, F, Eloise, I think, at one point. It's a few different variations on that kind of Lucy name. So I interpreted the movie in the end as, to to, to get as pretentious as possible, a kind of interplay between a universal look at relationships and a particular look at their relationship across time. So that it is the unfolding of their particular relationship at that farmhouse and the end of it at the school. But on the other hand, the reason the names change, the reason things, is this slipping out into a kind of and there's references to books all over the things. And actually, that's interesting, too, that their jobs or or what she studies and what he talks about yeah. changes constantly as well. And so yeah. it felt to me as though there is... I didn't necessarily interpret it as multiple personalities, but rather as different possibilities their relationship could have taken or different ways um, their relationship could have been. And the ways in which we get entrapped into certain relationships we or parts of our relationships we don't want, but on the other hand, live out our life anyways. And so in afterwards, I appreciate it for those things, but my God, while watching it, I was not prepared. I really think it's a movie. You have to know that it's a Walter Kaufman or you have to like think because it starts off fairly normally. Yes. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm, I'm very curious as to what the book gives it gives away in the more linear fashion. I think your interpretation of the Charlie Kaufman version of the film is probably everything that Charlie Kaufman was trying to get across. However, I don't necessarily think that that interpretation fits the Ian Reid source material. Mm -hmm. Because in reality, in the book, Louise doesn't actually exist. Whoa. She does, but not really. So the the character that you see at the end of the school, the elderly janitor, that is Jake. Mm-hmm. That, okay, yes. And so really what you're seeing is this 
breakdown of the follies of Jake's life. All the things he could have been or could have done had it not been for his introverted nature, his discomfort around people, his poverty growing up, the restrictions placed upon him because he had to take care of his ailing parents, all of these things that sort of arrested his life. Mm -hmm. So Louise is a person and they did meet at a bar at a trivia night and she did try to talk to him, but he was too shy and uncomfortable to continue that conversation or give her his number. Mm -hmm. So the entire relationship that you see from the beginning to about two thirds of the way through the book are essentially his imaginings of what would have happened if he had taken that next step and his assumptions based on his own self-esteem and the difficulties of his family life that she would at every point be thinking of ending things. Wow. And, and do you think his ability to think through those things is part of why he's, he wouldn't pursue a relationship or was that more regret? I think it's a coupling. I think it's both regret and acknowledgement. Like, I think it's, it's everything, you know, I would have never guessed this from the movie. This is, but I, I, I think it works. I think even in the movie, this fits. So that's why, like, when you see the kids at like the, the ice cream place being all weird and stuff around them, those are students at the school that he works at and is a janitor at. So the pretty, the two pretty blonde girls that are laughing at him that he's hiding from while Louise is paying, they're laughing at him because they laugh at him at school. They mock him. They think he's a pathetic loser. They make fun of him constantly. Um, and then the other girl with the rash who gets made fun of by those two girls is the only one that's kind to him. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's this this strange recognition that he has. So, like, once you get to the end of the book and you realize what it's about, there's this very strange recognition of, like, all the characters that you've seen throughout and how they have impacted him in his day-to-day life as this janitor. Wow. And Louise's studies and her job and Jake's job changing constantly throughout the movie and throughout the book are because these are all life paths that he wanted to pursue but couldn't because of different things getting in the way like his mother getting sick or his dad having dementia or poverty in his family that is so cool yeah Yeah. i wish i had connected to that that interpretation during the movie or even or even after because even even the interpretation i gave i found uh good but I I just found as a mood piece, the movie still didn't cohere to me in the ways that how things are. Yeah. But that that interpretation really helps, especially the ending with because the janders play such a prominent role, and then his how the ending is so focused on him and his speech at the end. I didn't understand why she it's, was so lost in the end. It's even I would say in the book, it's it's more traumatic. The ending is much more traumatic. And it's much, it's much, it's sad. Like, mm-hmm. it's just sort of this melancholy, 
dark ending because it's this like life that could have been for this man that's now like sort of trapped and he has he has come to a point in his existence where he feels like this is the inevitable ending and there is no fixing what he's lost yeah so it's time to just close the curtain Ugh, yeah so it's it's yeah it's very sad i think I think Charlie Kaufman did an excellent job, but I think it's so esoteric that if you haven't read the book, you you really are missing a lot of narrative structure. Mm-hmm. You're losing a lot of like the connection to the characters and their motivations because it's so atmospheric and so esoteric and so much a mood piece. Yeah. Um, whereas the book is really like you only really have the one narrator. It's just Louise until you get to the very end when you meet the janitor. So like you don't like, unlike the movie where you see the janitor multiple times throughout the movie, you don't mm-hmm. see him until the very end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, even though you know how it ends now, I still think it's really worth reading. It's very short. It's like 200, 250 pages, super quick read, but it's almost impossible to put down. Like it's so engaging. Wow. I think, I'm not sure if you have more to say about it, but I think we can move on to... No, yeah, go ahead. I ended up watching this movie that's come up on my recommendeds a million times, but I've never actually... Think so. I was like, Netflix really wants me to see this. But it's one called um, Shirkers. Okay. The title even itself is weird, but it is from a normal English word to shirk responsibility. So they're... Sharkers is a movie made in Singapore about some teenagers who are shirking, you know, responsibility of their lives and whatnot. But it was, right. it was it was made by these teenagers, and they on a very low budget, but they wanted to be filmmakers. And in 1992, and Sandy Tan, the director of it, and she starred in it. She is now made this documentary, which is what this is here about this movie because the movie was lost. They had someone helping them make the movie, who is a friend of hers. I'm forgetting his name now, uh, which is dumb because he's very important to this whole story. But he, he was an older gentleman and he helped them with the movie. And there's this creepy feeling between him and Sandy, who's a young woman at the time throughout the documentary but they make this movie and she plays a serial killer in a town in a very heathers-esque way and actually heathers came out right after they made this movie but it never got produced this movie so their ideas were very on trend at the time and might have been revolutionary and in singaporean film history apparently this is considered a kind of a, a, a large gap in it that everyone sort of, not everyone, but many people are aware that it should have existed, but it never did. And they even do this cool thing in the documentary where they show scenes from Rushmore, scenes from Ghost World, scenes from Heathers, which all are almost identical to some of the footage that they have from Shirkers, even though Shirkers was never released. Weird. Very, yes, very surreal. So I don't think it's that those movies copied it, but that they, no. it was on the zeitgeist. It knew something yeah. about that 
melancholic mood of young women in movies like Ghost World and Heathers that touched upon this movie. So they they lost footage because this guy took it. And that's what documents he he took it for himself. And he had this very creepy relationship with the footage where I love how they put it later on in the documentary that they all loved shirkers, but they all loved it in different ways. And his was a kind of necrophilic love for it. He loved that he has the footage and isn't releasing it. He loved keeping it as like a trophy mm. for himself, but couldn't give away. And they, they examine his whole life throughout this documentary. Like these Sandy Tan and then other people investigate his life and what, what he ended up doing and how he was and talking to friends of his and how he was always this. He wanted to pursue film so badly, but really didn't have the credentials. And so he ended up on all these small projects and, and getting people into debt and himself and whatnot and broken promises because of his screw ups. And so he ends up with this very strange relationship with things. But the documentary was so compelling to me and this footage was so compelling. And the story of these girls in Singapore and just the way that they just so badly wanted to make this movie. And she started um, these, you know, like zines, like little magazines where she'd like write up all sorts of stuff that was happening in, in her town and talking about it. And just this very rock and roll attitude, this do it yourself, get out there and do things. Man, the spirit of this whole thing just truly, I wouldn't, I want to say lit a fire in me, but that is, it's not exactly that. It just really inspired me and made me think of people who have that kind of energy. And it reminds me of some of my favorite, uh, bo well, books and movies and stuff like that. But I'm thinking in particular of one of my favorite books, On the Road, which has that kind of, I don't want to use the term, but manic pixie dream girl quality of someone who's so ambitious and so, in, what's it called, intuitive and instinctive, moving things along. And you see all these other people that Sandy uh, Tan is talking to, that she was truly, Sandy herself was truly the the pusher of the project. And when they thought they couldn't get it done, she made them do it faster. When they thought they, how could they get this production detail or this production thing? They were just like, we're going to do it. We're going to figure it out. And just that engine behind it mm -hmm. was just so inspiring. So yeah, that was a just an awesome experience and such a cool look into the things that can happen in film history. So I definitely recommend it for those reasons. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Like, it sounds really cool and just like very... I love hearing more about passion projects, you know what I mean? Like, I've watched a lot of documentaries about movies and stuff and just, like, the passion that went into creating them, so I think that's really cool. Do we have time for more content, or are we... What do you think? Oh, yeah. Okay, so I, I saw The Host, or Host, it's mm -hmm. just called Host, on Shudder. So Host is one of those glorious independent films that went straight to streaming. But if you have a Shutter subscription, it's on there. You should check it out. It's a Shutter original. Uh, and Host was filmed entirely during the pandemic, completely socially distanced. Right. So that's whole... so that's very cool. Yeah. So the whole movie was filmed via Zoom. Wow. It's a seance movie. Like, it's a supernatural horror. So it's just, it's basically the same premise as, like, Ouija Origins of Evil or anything like that, where it's mm -hmm. it's a seance gone wrong and they end up getting haunted. But it's this virtual seance and they're all 
they acknowledge the fact that the pandemic exists. They're socially distanced for that reason, because it's the pandemic. Wow. And they decide the one girl on the call is really into like spiritualism and the occult. So she brings on this spiritualist who she has done seances with in person as like a fun group activity. So they start doing it and the whole thing is like respect the spirits or things can go wrong. Um, But even the spiritualist is like, I've never done this virtually. So like, (laughs) I don't know how it's going to go. And of course it goes terribly. But I watched it with my mom and I'm... I'm not big on getting scared for, like, supernatural-y kind of horror movies. I do better with, like, I get more freaked out by, like, home invasion stuff, serial Mm -hmm. killers. Like, things that can exist in the real world that tends to freak me out more. This fucking movie scared (laughs) the shit out of me. Like... And it's short, like it's it's not even an hour long. Like it's it's really a short film. Like it's it's probably like fifty six minutes end to end. But it is so fucking good. It reminds me a lot of the first Paranormal Activity movie, which I actually thought was an excellent found footage horror movie. The first Paranormal Activity is, is honestly phenomenal. The whole, you're gonna hate me, but I I think I watched up to five, and I enjoyed every single one of them. I can never ever fight th- for them. I don't. But- they're so fun. I don't hate you. They are fun. All of them are fun, but I think the first one is a truly good movie. Like, it's genuinely hmm. good, and the rest are that just I'd have to think fun about. to me. Yes. That I'd have to think about. <laughs> because, to me, they're um, all very similar, but the first one does have something special. It was unique at the time. Yeah. The monsters are it less stupid. It was very stupid. unique. Yeah. It was... There was significantly less jump scaring. The jump scaring that was used was incredibly effective. Um, it kind of brought in that old style of found footage with like a, a Blair Witch Project, but mm-hmm. put a new kind of poltergeisty spin on it that really worked for me. Yeah. And just having all like basic unknowns in it made it a lot more realistic feeling. And if you watch the actual um, unrated cut with the like director's Ooh. cut ending, I, I think I'm it's, not sure it's I a watched lot that. more frightening. Oh. Um, the director's cut ending, she she dies at the end, hmm. I believe. So that's so there wouldn't have been any more sequels if they had kept that ending. But it's it's a lot more upsetting. It's a, it's a lot more intense and frightening. It reminded me a lot of that. It had that same kind of feel, that same kind of tension, um, but it's all socially distanced. So everything that's happening to each character, like you're very in tune with the background of it. You're you understand like where they live, how they live, the kinds of things that are getting fucked up in the background of each of their calls, which is really interesting to see. People are dropping and coming back in in, like, different states of mind. So it's it's, it's really cool. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it uses a similar effect to, like, like, this isn't the first time that, like, a Zoom call kind of movie has been done. The movie um, Unfriended. Unfriended, Unfriended, yeah. Dark Web use a similar kind of function. They use Skype calls instead of Zoom. And I think using Zoom during the pandemic is super effective because everybody's on fucking Zoom right yes. now. But yeah, it's it's just really cool. If you want to see something that's like really ingenious, like it's making the best of like the worst possible situation as far as the pandemic goes and turning it into something like a really interesting film that's just very fun and kind of innovative yeah for sure i think that's so cool yeah 
it just it's so in tune with something um i i remember a podcast i was listening to they used to say it's like you can tell now when a podcast episode is made post covid so if someone like use picks up one like takes an old episode and puts it in there's a there's a vibe change especially in those first few months because you couldn't help but talk about it a bit in those first mm. there's there's yeah. just there's a historical shift and life is For just sure. like not the same so I think this is a cool movie as like a connection to that. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's especially cool because we're seeing filmmakers kind of step away from the camera more and more in the last oh, like, yes. five years and doing things differently, right? Like you've got um, I can't remember what it was called, but it was the one on phones, one Tangerine. Cr- no, uh, Tangerine was one, and there was another one with the. With the woman um, who's in The Crown, um, and that was filmed entirely on an iPhone. Hmm. There's um, Unfriended, Unfriended Dark Web, and Searching, which are yep. all like found footage style, but through a computer. Um, so, so that kind of filming style is both interesting because it's taking the next step of technology and showing like what you can do with an indie budget and how, how you can make a good film with, with something less typical. But it's also in tune with how we interact with one another right now. Um, Not just the pandemic, but previous to the pandemic, where as far as millennials and Gen Zers go, your main form of interaction and communication is going to be through a computer screen or through a phone screen. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be your FaceTimes, your Zooms, your Skype calls, your IMs, all of that shit. So I, I think it's interesting to see what filmmakers can do with that. And I think venturing into something like that during a pandemic it gives independent filmmakers a lot of options to continue pushing the boundaries of film and getting to express themselves in ways that like major studios may not have allowed previous to this you know what i mean without having clout behind your name yeah because of i'm thinking of ending things that is actually the end of my list i did want to talk about two tiny bits of news things that i think is cool though yeah, do it. So, one of my favorite sci-fi books is being ad- adapted into a show by Netflix. Oh, huge okay. budget. Um, so the okay. the the book series it's a trilogy of sci-fi books called the Three Body Problem. The actual trilogy is called the Remembrance of Earth's Past, but that's a stupid title. So everyone's like Game of Thrones. Everyone's going to go with the first book title, which is the Three Body Problem, because that's what everyone I know says anyways and that's even how it was how it was um expressed in the in the news that netflix was making this and i've already given it away but guess who the showrunners are gonna be for it the game of thrones people oh yeah dnd (laughs) which everyone's like just cringed you know everyone's just like we understand they adapted game of thrones well when they had source material for the years and that they know how, because this is going to be a big, big budget one across many nations, forever. And their their showrunners know how to do that physically. Yeah. But of course, everyone's like, they don't effing deserve it. Like they don't effing deserve another giant budget, yeah. huge thing. So, I love these books so much, and I really want to see them big budget adapted. So I just, I'm just going to hope. You know, I don't yeah. my, I didn't hate the end of Game of Thrones as much as people, but I really I'm trying not to let it get tainted by the fact of showrunners because I do think based on the reaction the showrunners 
and based on how they wanted to jump off to Star Star Wars, that's my problem, is that they treated the property poorly at the end. I feel like they got bored. Yeah. I feel like that's what it is. I think I think they were like so invested for the first like five seasons and then you can feel them starting to get bored. Yeah. So I think that's exactly it. And so I, I just, I think they can do a good job, but morally I'm like, they don't deserve this. But now that they are on it, I want them to do a great job. There's tons of other big names attached to, um, which I didn't write down because I'm an idiot. Yeah. Super very useful very useful. Yes. Yeah. The other bit of news was there's a show coming out on HBO called We Are Who We Are, which I've seen the trailers for, and the first episode's out now. And it is so good looking. And I looked up who's making it, and I was like, I basically knew before I knew, but I just because it was an HBO show, I didn't think it was. But you're gonna kill me, but it's the director of Call me by your name. <laughs> so, but of course I'm I I'm not going to kill you for that. I know, but I, I said that I'd stop referencing him. But it's relevant to every episode. Luca Guadagnino. Italian. I mean, I would I would probably not pronounce that second G and say it's like Luca Guadagnino. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, Guadagnino. Yeah. I would yes, probably say that something sounds... like that. Go with Lydia's pronunciation. Luca Guadagnino. Yeah. Um, I might still be wrong. I have no idea who this person is, but that sounds more correct than what you but said. But so have you seen, um, I, this is a show I do want to watch, but, I haven't, but have you seen any of Euphoria, the show, or heard about uh, it? I watched a couple episodes. It didn't really, it, yeah. it didn't grab me personally. Like it's, it mm. does feel like very much a Gen Z show and there's something wrong with that. Um, but like it just, it kind of felt like the Gen Z version of something like Kids or 13, like Skins. those two movies. Or skins. God, I fucking love skins. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I would say my clearest thing, if you know these two properties, but it's Call Me By Your Name meets Euphoria. Like, that's that's exactly what it is. It's younger. It's about very Gen Z, gender identity, race problems, like all of that mixed up in a very high tension plot. So, looks so cool. It's got Chloe Savini in it. Kid Cudi's gonna be in it? Jesus. Sorry, I looked it up on IMDb because mm-hmm. you weren't really providing a lot of details. That's my details. <laughs> um, no, but that's cool. That's cool news. I didn't look up any news, so I have not. Well, these are just trailers and stuff that I that I saw in my last. Like, I just think these are cool things that I came across, and so I yeah just wrote them down. I should probably start doing that. So, the devil all the time. What does it mean, Lydia? Yes. <laughs> I don't know. What's it means the movie? You're always with sin. Oh. Um, it's funny because they do say the line right say at the that. beginning, but I actually forget yeah. what it was. So. Well, it's basically just saying, like, the devil is with you all the time. Mm. So that was a cool movie. That was yes. an, an adventure. And yeah. I really appreciated it. Yeah, it had all the things that I like. Like, it's based mm. off a book, which now I want to read. Um, but, like, obviously I love crime and, and thrillers yes. and mysteries. Like, that's my jam. But also, it's 
it had multiple narrators, which is one of my favorite things in books. I love books with multiple narrators. And it also had multiple time periods. So you're Mm -hmm. shifting between narrators and at certain points you're shifting through timelines with different narrators, which I find really interesting and I find it engages me a lot. So it's almost like you're... There is one sort of through line in the entire movie, but it feels almost like you're watching these separate but tied in vignettes. Yeah. So you get these encapsulated stories about each of these different sort of secondary leads Mm -hmm. and they all wrap around your main lead character. Yeah. To set the stage a bit, it's set just after World War II at least in the beginning, mm-hmm. where Bill Skarsgård's character is, I believe he's just come back from the war, or... Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he has a child, and his wife gets sick. So some bad things... Sort of like the beginning of Up. Yeah. <laughs> Except with a kid. <laughs> some terrible things happen. He ends up sacrificing, like, literal sacrificing to God, their family dog, in the attempt to cure his wife and praying and forcing his kid to pray with him to beg the Lord for his wife's life. Uh, Of course, it doesn't succeed. And uh, it's horrible and obviously leaves the kid scarred. And as you said, then we have this connections between other characters that are coming in sort of around this event this mm-hmm. um, this town, this this boy growing up. And another scene that's important is you see uh, two guys while they're praying, sort of walking by, and they say that they're going to go and essentially rape his wife. Uh, but he doesn't want to stop praying for her. So he doesn't do anything at the time, but he says, there's, he says to his son that there's some bad people out there. And what can you do but punch him out? So he waits for his right time and he goes, uh, sees them at a kind of the, the front area of a bar or something like that. Just sort of, yeah, just sort of some guys standing, yeah, s- sitting around a picnic table and he just beats on them like really, really hard and then uh, goes back to the kid and he's like, that's just what you got to do. And yeah. so that sets a path for him who ends up being uh, Tom Holland's character and is sort of the centerpiece character of the yeah sh- of the movie, and so that's the that's the stage of the kind where we're working with a very religious um, themed show in kind of rural America. Mm-hmm. I guess I'll finish because the, the other major character that I mean, there's many many others, so yeah, maybe there isn't a way to really set it. Stage. Yeah, um, but there is a, a serial killing couple. And the other main character being Robert Pattinson's preacher, who is perverted, or I'm not sure what you call it, but, you know, is, is a preacher who's willing to lie to young women to get in their pants. I, I mean, I think saying young women is a bit, is a little disingenuous, because these are underage girls. Like, these sure. are high school students. These are yes, children. Yeah. Um, so he's a pedophile. <laughs> he's a child molester. Which, you know tracks the movie to me felt very much like a balancing act of like morals and ethics yes and the basis of those morals and ethics whether or not they're steeped in in religion and how that can 
cause or build extremism um, of different types or create environments where you can self-justify based on your belief system or your ingratiation into your community. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's not necessarily saying that religion causes these violent acts or perversions or extremism. It's, it's more, it's more saying, I think in my mind that there is a danger within those types of communities where there will be people that will take advantage or people that can over obsess and become extreme but then you sort of see the flip side of the coin for the people that are not religious extremists but are also terrible people Mm -hmm. right i mean you have the sheriff who really isn't religious at all but is a terrible person you have sandy one half of the like natural born killers couple who really isn't religious at all but aids and abets this serial killer husband who is religious. So you're, you're seeing kind of two sides of moral extremism and the depravity of it. Yeah, I liked what they said in the movie, uh, a line about Carl, the serial killing husband, where it's the narrator, I believe, who was the original author of the book, which I think is really yes. cool. So you're getting exactly what he meant. Uh, so I really like that. And he narrates many lines, which I assume are straight from the book. And he says of Carl that only in killing these men does he see God. That's his God. It's not even it's not even like only in killing these men. It's only in death. Yes. Does he see God? And I think that's an important distinction given the ending arc of his character. Because one would imagine that in that moment, he again would feel close to God. Mm-hmm. One journey I want to, to take us on in the movie that I really enjoyed is the gun. So there's this gun at the beginning of the movie, which so many characters get it. So I'm not going to say which characters say which things. But essentially, the gun is first given as what seems to be the gun who killed Hitler. Of course, they know it's not the gun who killed Hitler, but it's the same shape of the small pistol. Um, and they're like, it's oh. It's a Luger. So, so here's, here's my interpretation. Here. The Hitler represents, in a certain way, of course, the devil, the worst of all evil. And the, this gun killed the worst of all evil. But I think the movie itself is, in a certain way, to me, the binding theme is it's one of those movies about how God works in mysterious ways. Now, of course, we're mm-hmm. in a very secularized society now. And so you're going to have to make that not seem hokey. And I don't think the movie feels hokey at all. So when they try, when the father tries to save his wife, Bill Skarsgård's character tries to save his wife by sacrificing a dog to God and praying really hard, of course, that doesn't work. That's not how God works. God's never going to give you a bargain like that. But his son later on in his life, in a birthday party, which is the first time you see Tom Holland's character, he's given this gun as a birthday present. That gun, in the end, nothing, but very much helps him in life's journey mm-hmm. and very much represents a kind of righteous fury. It's a, it's, the gun is kind of like an Old Testament God. It doesn't do things through forgiveness or through 
that Tom Tomon's character has internalized a kind of you have to go out and make the good yourself. But mm-hmm. is that the right thing to do? Of course, in morality that we have today, it doesn't feel right. Like it doesn't. It, it, of course, we could never condone vigilante justice. But the way his character is set up and the depravity of the characters he's and the people he's encountering really sets it up in this incredible journey for this gun to to allow it to have this moment of righteous um, fury. And I love that, that guiding thread throughout the movie. I think it's a very original way, maybe not original, but a very contemporary way to look at an idea of God. Yeah, and I think, I think there's a really great, like, almost throwaway line that I think really supports your interpretation, where the one police department calls the other police department and says, hey, this death happened here, the suspect is this person, and we believe that he's heading to your town because he grew up there, and you know, the police department's, like, the police officer just says, you know, we don't think he's violent or anything from everything we've heard. Right. This person deserved what they got. And I think, yes. like, that that perfectly supports exactly what you're saying. It's, it's, it's that justified rage. Yeah. You know, that, that vigilante justice that everyone agrees with. It's the Batman scenario where it's yeah. like, well, you know, some people deserve what they get. Um, and I think it's interesting, too, because the person who died in this instance is a well-respected man in the community and a known man of God. And the police are very quick to just be like, no, he deserved it. Mm-hmm. So it's okay. So we can justify it. And I think that's that's kind of interesting because you're seeing people sort of almost immediately waffle in their morals and ethics and what it is that puts them over that line. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, like traditionally in these kinds of small sort of southern rural towns, you're going to see a lot of decisions made in regards to the community figures who a lot of the time are religious. So a lot of the morals and ethics of that community are going to be based and steeped in religion. And you have this religious figure and there is a clear line where they're like, no, you're not to be respected anymore. Despite you being a man of God, despite you speaking on behalf of our community to God, you're not to be respected anymore because of this specific transgression. I wonder too, now this is, I think, going a a breath too far, but I wonder too, the symbology of, of course, Hitler committed suicide. The devil, in a way, killed himself. And, And Tom Holland, of course, as you're saying, like, in a way, his his character is righteous with the use of that gun, but it's also horribly violent and horribly it, the the way his violence is portrayed in the movie is very similar to the depraved, horrible violence that he is against. There, the movie does not make his a nicer superhero esque yeah. 
feeling. His, his are just as brutal, grotesque, and in the mud as these horrible characters he's encountering. There's something about the movie that makes that all compelling. Everyone's in the mud, and yet you still agree with certain characters and agree with certain things that are happening yeah. much more than others. I love the police officer's journey at the end, too, because it is one of the more complicated balancing yeah. acts. Yeah, despite everybody being brutal, everybody being cruel at different times, there are very clear lines, I think, in the majority of people's morals. Mm -hmm. You know, like the majority of people will say a pedophile crosses a specific moral boundary. And and there are a few people that would disagree with you. Um, a serial killer crosses a specific moral boundary. So while this young man is like beating the ever-living shit out of people or randomly murdering people, it's easier to side with him because he's not crossing these very clear boundaries. He's not killing for fun or for pleasure. He's not satisfying an abhorrent sexual urge. He's killing people who are crossing these lines yeah. it's kind it reminds me of sort of the punisher mm -hmm. who's a similar kind of vigilante who would kill people who did similarly cross a specific moral boundary and i also don't agree with the punisher i think that's terrible but it it, it is a similar sort of narrative structure and and inception of character mm -hmm. i think what's interesting to me is that the movie does though feel fresh and original in a certain way. I really like its look at God and its look at these communities at the same time as not, I mean, perhaps part of the reason it feels fresh in its way is in its not feeling like what all these other movies are doing, not mm -hmm. just going with the, the same trends. And especially a religious movie, I feel religion, even though of course religion still plays a huge role in so many people's lives, as a serious issue, like besides just a random preacher to say one line in a movie or something like this, as a serious focus, the only other thing I can think of recently that I've seen was Daredevil, um, the show, mm. where there was a serious focus on religion. But otherwise, it's such a sidelined issue in mainstream media nowadays to, to my... I have seen... Uh, there's actually a really good movie uh, with an amazing scene with the, with the priest. I believe the movie's called Hunger, but it was about the Irish prisoners who went on a hunger strike. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Yeah. The, this priest asked them, you've got, to, like, because that, they were doing it in part because of this religious war. Um, yeah, and he's like, he's like, you guys need to, you know, you need to make conceits and, and be with us and they, uh, uh, they have this wonderful, just this so long conversation between them. And they're like, we are like of this faith and of this thing. And we are going to get to this, to the end. Like that's, mm -hmm. you have your moral belief. We have ours and we are going to hunger strike until the, the last of us are dead. And that was their thing. And it's this powerful feeling. And I think that's one of the things religious as opposed to just moral arguments can get to is this, this God is almighty fi finality that mm -hmm. you'll never back down from the belief you have. And of course, that leads to fanaticism. Of course, that leads to extremism. But there is a kind of 
you know, elegance and beauty to that, just the, the absoluteness of it. Um, and so I, I do enjoy stories like that from time to time. And this one really I mean, connected to that essence. I mean, hunger is an interesting example to bring up because I will agree with you that the movie does portray it very much as just being solely a religious war and they're literally going on a hunger strike because of their religion. But that's that's not really true. That's not really accurate. They went on that hunger strike in the prison because they were literally illegal prisoners. They, mm-hmm. they were imprisoned for protesting for their right to exist in Ireland. And it didn't have as much to do with like Protestants fighting Catholics as it did with the Irish fighting the British for like illegally withholding land and refusing their existence Mm -hmm. and refusing them to practice their religion. It wasn't just about the one thing. It was about their civil liberties and their civil rights. So yes, religion is definitely intertwined into that story, but so much of it was, was about a massive civil rights movement that led to many people dying in a very similar fashion to the, current protests that are happening in America and the protests that happened in America in the 60s around the same time as this was going on in Ireland through the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I do believe the movie around that scene does a good job of bringing in many different issues and many different things. It's just that that scene in the, in the center is about a pastor and, and their thing. And so that's um, why I brought it up way, but you're absolutely right that there is, of course, so much more context and history that the, even the movie gets nowhere uh, near to uh, explaining. It's sad a lot of those prisoners died just from straight starvation and neglect. Mm-hmm. I mean, the starvation was their choice. They went on the hunger strike, but like they, they were barely provided anything. They were being tortured on a regular basis for like information and shit. It was very terrible. That shit happened while my parents were still living in Ireland. They were like teenagers and stuff dating when that shit was going on. Watch Hunger. It's it's very interesting if you're interested yes. in, you know, the history of Ireland, the IRA and Northern Ireland. Um, but to get back to the devil all the time, I, I mean, obviously this is very much about God and it's very much about religion and fanaticism. Um, but I think it's, you're, it's about that and it's about, the relationship Christianity has with America on the whole Mm -hmm. and also within like the moral fabric of those individual communities, especially rural communities in the South. Yes. Um, And how despite being a secular nation, you can see in many regions, definitely in the 50s and 60s, I'm not sure about now. I would say probably still true now. But in many regions, religion shapes the nature of their legal and justice system. It shapes the nature of their political system. It shapes all of their interactions with each other in a community, who they can be friends with, the station that they can exist in in life. And I think it this movie kind of highlights the dangers that live in shaping your entire community around one religious belief Mm -hmm. and the insidious things that can kind of seep into that when all you have is to look to religion. A scene that I love um, from that, or that, that seems to have very little to do with 
this God thing, but it, it has somehow a powerful connecting point in the movie is Tom Holland's character, his grandmother who he's staying with, she cooks um, chicken livers to bring to the pastor and, and tons of people from town bring stuff for this new pastor. And he, uh, the, the movie does this incredible job of showing her cooking. And it's this really delicate or interesting cooking scene. And the narrator says she is one of the best cooks of the whole area and people knew it. And she makes this dish, which is incredibly inexpensive to make, but with incredible skill. But the preacher doesn't even bother to taste it before just waving it off as how beautiful and religious it is of him to eat the worst food on the table, just on the mm-hmm. fact that it's the cheapest. It's in the worst dishware, and it was the cheapest food, and he doesn't even bother tasting it before making this speech. And somehow, that has so little to do with what's going on in the rest of the movie, but on another level, everything to do as a kind of hypocrisy, a kind of falsity. Same with the gun, this was this the gun that killed Hitler? Of course we know it's not the gun who killed Hitler. That's what a, a real person sees the hypocrisy, or a down-to-earth person sees the hypocrisy. The pastor is the exact opposite. He's someone who doesn't bother looking past the surface. He just expresses what comes to him and just says what gets him attention. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's true, but that's also why I brought up that like a lot of these communities, even like the station in life and the and the importance you have as a person can be boiled down to like the religious fabric and the morals within that religion. So you have this pastor that is essentially degrading this poor woman based solely on her income or amount of money mm-hmm. she has access to. Regardless of what the food tastes like, it could be the best dish on the table. His whole point is to point out the fact that to be religious, you have to also care for the poor. Yes. And in saying that, Mm. he is entirely pointing out and humiliating this beloved member of the community that everyone had respect for previously, that everyone held up on a pedestal previously for her cooking skill, regardless of the... uh, quality of ingredients she could afford she has now been placed in this position based on the pastor's opinion of what is important being finances and money now she's in this low position this low station regardless of skill or the quality that she brought to the community previously this new pastor can now say well she's you know a worthless poor lady she can't even afford real meat. Yeah. She brought these chicken livers. I'm not going to make the rest of the congregation suffer in having to eat the like innards of a chicken. So I will suffer alone so that you can have the good meats. And now she's worthless. And I and I think it's intentional. I think he's intentionally trying to create this sort of cast system Mm. where he's at the top of the pile and then based on your financial standing within the community it goes down from there so he's king shit at the top but because he's so pious and so full of god's love he's willing to eat at the table of the poor as long as you know that he is at the top of the pile Mm -hmm. 
regardless. And then your financial standing determines how close you are to him and thus how close you are to God. Yeah. Which is directly in contradiction to Jesus's teachings. Jesus was all for eat the rich. He threw the money lenders mm -hmm. out of the fucking church. I say as a lapsed Catholic. I think this conversation does point out just how there are so many characters and so many interactions that have this rich characteristic of being in the mud, being in the complications of social fabric, of religious teachings and beliefs, and the necessities of getting your own hands dirty, or whether getting your hands dirty is actually corruption or not. Yeah. Um, and all the characters are in different connect connected threads of those lines. The preacher to me is the most like subtly well developed in my opinion as far as like the more I talk about the whole like rich versus poor thing the more I'm noticing all the things that they did throughout the movie to make it clear that he was wealthier than anyone else in the town but he has his very fancy car that they make a comment about how he's flashy. Mm -hmm. He's got these like really well tailored suits in these light pastel colors. And he specifically went to Bible college, mm -hmm. unlike the previous pastor. So you can tell that he's this sort of wealthy elite from a large city coming down to like save rural America. Right. So I think they put a lot of emphasis on like that sort of specific type of evangelical preacher that you see nowadays that are like more often than not financially motivated mm -hmm. and base the fabric of their congregation community around finances. Yeah. And the kind of moral lapses that that can lead to. I think the movie has so many good uh, critiques and investigations into these issues. But I do feel a caution at the end that what I feel, what I feel it gives positively, this message of taking justice into your own hands, is while interestingly done in the movie, it's still not quite where where it makes sense to me where i feel it's actually moral or where i feel it, uh, it, politically it makes sense um but i believe it, it's beautiful for the movie but i do fear some people watching it thinking that you the one or two characters that are end up good i think do take things a little into, into their own hand too much a little into their own hands see i I would argue with you that it's showing that it's putting a positive spin on like the taking justice into your own hands, because while that that main character, you know, survives to the end, I wouldn't necessarily see that ending as as the most hopeful. He loses everything. Mm -hmm. His, you know, adopted sister is gone. His parents, he's an orphan. His adoptive, like, grandmother, parent, he can never see again. He even has a hopeful moment of, like, well, maybe they'll realize that what I did was justified. Maybe I'll get to see grandmother again. And then he realizes, no, that's that's too much to hope for. That'll never happen. 
Yeah. And he starts having these conversations with himself. Well, what can I do at this point where my reputation is destroyed and I can never go home again? And his only thought is that he could enlist in the army, but he saw what enlisting in the army eventually led to for his father. Mm -hmm. So that's not really an option either, unless he wants to come full circle and close the loop, doing the same damage his father did to him to his own child and perpetuating this negative cycle. I agree that in the secular world, that is what he, what he feels. But what I think the, the message overall is, is a being a higher person than the secular world and that the justice he dispensed is worth it regardless of the consequences in the secular world. And that's the message that I fear that many people take, which of course the justice is justified in the movie. But at the same time, I fear for that kind of message for that character. But see, I have a hard time with that as well, because I would consider him the secular character of the film, more or less, Hmm. because he saw what prayer and religion did to his father and eventually led his father to do. Mm -hmm. He never prayed with his sister. He hardly went to church and only went when his grandmother essentially forced him to. You only see him in that church twice, except for the time that he, you know, does the terrible thing. And everything related to religion has either led to him causing physical harm to other people or physical harm coming down on his family. So I don't see him as a religiously based character and I don't see him as making these moral judgments based in religion. I see him as a character that has foregone religion and has been abused by religion through his life and doesn't agree with it and is trying to avoid it. But hasn't found a healthy balance and can't figure out how to build an ethical or moral structure because the only one he has ever known has been steeped in evangelical religion. I think then for me, the message comes down to there is a false religion in the way it's preached and practiced in in life. But I think he, in a way, is discovering the true religion or that's what I feel like. I feel like he he's justified in what he's doing, or you as the the viewer feel he's justifying what he's doing from an absolute core of morality within yourself while watching it, believing that what he's doing is righteous. And mm. he finds that for himself. And that's what I fear in the movie is that the final righteousness that's provided, I think, is justified in the context of the movie, and you feel good about his character, but there's something very particular about a situation and circumstances which allowed that to be true and i think i'm i'm just not sure how that inspires a viewer like whether that's the right lesson to take into one's own life i i don't i still don't necessarily agree with you like i feel like we're looking at the grown man who was once a child and as a child had been raised to believe that the only way to survive in the world was through sacrifice and revenge. Mm -hmm. Because that's what his father taught him. The only way to be respected or to survive the terrible things that were inevitably going to happen to you um, were to either exact proportional revenge 
or to sacrifice something you love Mm -hmm. in the hopes that you would get something in return. And we know that as a child, he sees that sacrifice does not work. Right. But revenge satisfies your anger Mm -hmm. and your pain, at least for a stopgap. So this is like a man who recognizes that everything his father did led to his inevitable inevitable demise and ruined his childhood, traumatized him, but has no other functional way to cope when terrible things happen to or around him. Mm-hmm. He has no other mechanisms to handle trauma. He does not understand morals and ethics outside of the confines of the church. And the church led him to nothing but trauma and pain. So this is a fractured person as the result of traumatic, fanatical religion, trying to get away from it and failing and ending up perpetuating the cycle that he was raised in. Mm -hmm. So my opinion None of it is positive. While you're rooting for him and you want him to survive, I don't feel good about anything that he did. And I don't Hmm. see him as feeling good about anything he did. I see him as like wishing it could have been right and that people would recognize that it is right so he could go home. But knowing that that would never happen because ultimately what he did was a terrible thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'm very, okay. I'm just going to do it and maybe we'll cut it out after, but uh, it is honestly reminds me of one of my favorite sort of philosophical thought experiments people have had, but it's this idea of community ethics versus individual ethics. So one might, so let's say there's a person and they don't have a community and they're just doing things that they desire in their own lives. So, Carl, the serial killer, might be an example of this. He's not thinking about other people. He's just doing what makes him happy, and he's doing it to his utmost degree. Another person, though, and this is our normal idea of ethics, might consider their community and all the community together. We all come to a rational agreement of things we should do, laws, practices, and we're all like, don't kill, don't steal, um, do good works for the community, and we all agree that those are the right things to do. Um, there's a philosopher, Kierkegaard, who says there's a problem when it comes it, precisely about God. He he was talking about what true faith in God is about. He's like, what if what's moral to do is not justified by your community? That to do it yourself, to do it in your own way, would never be justified. And what he was trying to get at was actually the story of Abraham, who sacrifices Isaac at the top of the mountain, or would have if God hadn't intervened. Yeah. He says, how from a communal community perspective could you justify that how could you justify killing your own son as the right thing to do and he says it's worse than you think in that it's not that he'd kill his son and then god would give him the kingdoms or god had told him this is god had told him that isaac would be the progenitor of the 12 kingdoms of of god of israel so actually by killing his son he'd ruin god's plan but god told him then to kill Isaac anyways. So he had mm-hmm. no, Kierkegaard's point is that he had no rational reason. He just obeyed this pure moral instinct at the highest end, which is God's command. And to me, it's a very compelling thought that what if what the right thing to do, no one around you 
is justified. And not only that, but you can't articulate yourself. You can't prove it to people yourself. That is the right thing to do. But you know in your heart that is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. What to do then? And I think this movie gets close to touching on that difficulty because his community and the religious communities in perhaps doesn't it, it is failing him and doesn't tell him to do the things he's doing. But I think there's a way in which you follow his character and you think he had to do what he had to do, even though we would send him to jail, even though his reputation shot, et cetera, et cetera. These are the things he had to do. And I think that dichotomy is what's at stake in, in the movie. And to me, it's been something I've been thinking about and, and fighting in my philosophical life for a very long time. I don't necessarily tend to think about it as God telling these things, but I think of it as a personal where that feeling that we get, like, I think artists have this the most. It's like where an artist might not be able to tell you why they created what they created, but they create something amazing. And then later, maybe 50 years later, whatever, people start interpreting it and seeing what was so brilliant about it mm-hmm. in retrospect. Uh, and I, and I think there's some uh, connection there. And I think, that connection is what so compels me with the movie, even though for I've been thinking about this for six, seven years or more now. And I have a huge trouble with the thought. Um, but I like the movie for that reason. Yeah. Overall, I think it was, it was really oh, beautifully acted, beautiful sets, everything else, of course, excellent execution. Yeah. And I, I think making the choice to shoot this film on 35 millimeter was like exactly the right choice for the aesthetic, that sort of rural fifties kind of feel it get it, it just has kind of a warmer, more granular look to it. Um, that lends itself to the overall aesthetic and really puts you in the movie, especially watching something on Netflix. It, it gives it more of like an independent theater feeling having it be on 35 millimeter and not like super high definition. You know what I mean? I agree. I agree. I think it was a cool choice. Um, Mm -hmm. And I love choices like that. Just in that I like when creators are thinking like, or like are making deliberate choices, artistic choices and are trying to inspire a mood. Because so much, I mean, mainstream stuff can often be, very watchable i don't i watch lots of trash it's very very watchable but the 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 thing you notice after you watch it uh, or you think about it a bit is there isn't much thought put into things they're just copying or doing whatever's been working recently and Mm -hmm. and that just doesn't feel memorable or inspired or something that makes you want to love something because you're just like this is the same filmmaking techniques the same sets the same ideas as everyone else in the area but it's like, you know, it's pop it tastes good when you're when you're engaged. Yeah. The the cinema cinematography choice in particular gives me the same kind of feel that like Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight gave me, where he made the aesthetic choice to film it on 70 millimeter, um, to give it that kind of granular time period feel and i think i think the choice was made similarly in in the devil all the time with the 35 millimeter um because it gives it more of a time period accuracy that you can really feel mm-hmm. when you watch it i'd also mention yeah. i really got vibes of no country for old men and i this one's much more abstract but even at the end this the scenes did remind me of under the skin 
Um, in a, but that's more of a filmmaking, a kind of the type of surrealism that you end up in. Um, thing. Of course, it's not surreal in this movie, but there's something, something about a chase in that in a woods that is always a weird uh, end point. <laughs> but yeah, I great experience. Just really, really recommended. Yeah, highly recommend. And it's you're going to see some of your current favorite actors doing something so different, very different from what they've done before. I mean, I, I think we've all come to expect that. I think we've all come to expect that from Robert Pattinson. He's continually doing outside of the box productions that I love. Uh, but, you know, seeing Sebastian Stan and Tom Holland in those kinds of roles, and even Jason Clark, who, who has been, you know, doing more kind of rugged, strange films recently, you're seeing him more in like a really strong character role that I, I think was really excellent for him. Um, and you're seeing Sebastian Stan do something that's not Marvel and also not very like looks focused. Like it's not about physique mm-hmm. or general objectification. Um, and then Tom Holland as a much more intense, significantly less boyish role, which I thought was really interesting on the casting director's yes. choice because he is so young and boyish and kind of pure looking but he plays this character that is you know traumatized disenfranchised and sort of downtrodden and in the muck yeah i I just really interesting like uh casting all around yep um so you can find us on uh on twitter at fans pod and um of course you're obviously listening to us but can listen to us on any of your usual listening services and we'd like to um start connecting more and figuring out more social media stuff but we're working on that and just uh doing our due diligence in the meantime but thanks for listening bye bye